As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Three, two, one, zero. Hello, welcome to... Episode 116, Terry Mead. Hey, Money Clan. Welcome to another edition of the Chain of Wealth podcast. I'm your host, Dennis O'Brien. And I'm Katie Walsh. So, Katie, today we're chatting with Terry and... Terry is a really cool angel investor, which is something we haven't had on the show before. So definitely an interesting episode. Yeah, I learned a lot here. First, I always kind of thought, and we talked about this in the episode with Terry, that angel investors were kind of like old white dudes in the big office. Right, that's the stereotype. Yeah, and yeah. I'm really happy to see that women are getting into it. And not so much even just the women, but like normal people. Right. Like people it, that a, could be your neighbor. Yeah. And like you always think angel investor, you need like literally a zillion thousands dollars and millions of dollars. But it's actually a bit more achievable than what you realize. And if it's something you're interested in, it's something to sort of start playing early. Yeah. And I, after talking to her, it is definitely a learning curve. Like I don't think you can go out tomorrow and be an angel investor. But the way Terry explained it, it was much more achievable and not as scary of an idea. Yeah. So I really appreciated that from her. Yeah, definitely. So before we dive into our episode, if anyone is looking to join a community of people looking to tackle any financial burden or anything like that, as an example, paying off debt, join our Facebook group. You can head on over to chainofwealth.com slash group. There you can join a whole bunch of people in our community and discuss real issues that you may be facing. All right, Katie, you ready to dive in? Yep. Awesome. Let's do it. Welcome to Chain of Wealth. Here's your host, Dennis, inspiring you to begin your journey of financial freedom. Terry Mead is an angel investor and fellow podcaster based out of San Francisco Bay Area. She has been investing in digital health, specifically in Femtech, which is women's healthcare, and Pediatech, which is pediatric healthcare, all while teaching how to live their best life through their podcast, Piloting Your Life. Hey, Welcome, Terry. Terry. Well, hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So we talked a little bit before the show. You do like a million things. You're a mom, you're a wife, you own your own business. You're an angel investor. 
I really want to learn about angel investing, though, because I feel like we don't get to talk to an angel investor all the time. Well, I know quite a few of them. So let me know who you want intros to. (laughs) So real quick, how did you become an angel investor? Because I feel like that's not something you just wake up and you're like, oh, today I'm going to go and be an investor. How did you start? You know, that's a really great question. And I think it's especially great for women to hear about how other women get into angel investing. About three and a half years ago, I was talking to a buddy of mine and I was complaining about how I was bashing my head against the wall within my clients within life sciences. I'm a believer in leveraging data and technology to really optimize business performance, get to market faster, get to the binary yes, no regarding a drug faster. And it wasn't necessarily appreciated. And I was truly frustrated. And he suggested that I consider angel investing. And I thought, I even said this out loud. I'm like, I can do that? And he said, absolutely. I'd been investing in stuff for about 20 years. My dad had got me investing very early. And we met the accredited investor requirements. And so he referred me into Sandhill Angels. I went to a couple of meetings. And I, after the pitches and the conversations, I said, I'm in. Getting into Sandhill Angels was not an easy thing to do. I put in my application. I talked to a membership guy and the membership guy who was like an old white guy like my dad said, I'm not sure the board's going to approve your application. And I asked him why. And he said, you don't fit the typical profile. And it didn't occur to me to ask him, well, what's the typical profile? I just assumed that, okay, what the heck? Let me just go ahead and give it a shot. And so when I got notified about a month later that my membership had been approved, I assumed they'd made an exception. And so when I started actively getting involved about two months later, I felt like I really had to prove myself. Fortunately, about two years later, I realized that the typical profile, it was just not a woman who didn't come from high tech. I didn't have the university pedigree and I just, I wasn't one of them. And that turned out to be a really good thing because I realized I'm an independent thinker I see things that other people don't see, but I really doubted myself initially. And I think my path in was a little unusual, but I don't think it's that atypical for what a lot of women getting into angel investing end up encountering. Interesting. So for our listeners that don't know, what's the difference between angel investing and being a venture capitalist? So as an angel investor, I invest my own money and venture capitalists generally get other people to invest in a fund and then they will then invest that money into startups. I invest in early stage companies and depending upon where you are in the country or the world, it's either pre-seed, seed, post-seed, peach seed. I've even invested in series A and all of these are a little bit different depending upon where you are. Because for us, like a seed round is a million, million and a half, or even up to $2 million on a, you know, a six to $12 million valuation. Whereas if you're in Oklahoma City or outside of Philadelphia, you could be doing a series A round, which is later stage, which would be the same amount. But here in the San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley, everything's just a lot more, more expensive. So I'm sitting here thinking about, I know that one of the best ways to accumulate the most amount of wealth is to be an entrepreneur and have your own business going, even if it's something down the line and you started as a side hustle, that's ultimately, hopefully, 
an end goal to own your own business. And I'm sitting here thinking as an entrepreneur, like if I were to start a business, I have absolutely no idea what to expect when speaking to an angel investor. What are some of the things that somebody could expect going through the process and finding somebody like yourself? It's actually, it's not easy. Usually what you end up doing is you talk to other founders, you may join an accelerator, you may become part of an incubator, you may um, attend meetups, you may go to things through like the Founders Institute, just to understand who to talk to and how to go about doing it. There's a great book called Angel by Jason Calacanis. And it talks a lot about how angel investors operate or should operate. And it really is, it's a tutorial for people who want to become angel investors or learn how to become better angel investors. And I recommend that every founder who's interested in getting uh, angel or VC money, that they read that book. I also recommend that they read a book called Venture Deals by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson. It talks a lot about what VCs are, how they operate, a bunch of terminology, term sheets, et cetera, because it's it's very complicated. <laughs> so I would start with those and then just start listening to podcasts and start reading blogs, getting newsletter updates. There's PitchBook, there's Crunchbase. I, I can't even keep up with all of them that I subscribe to as an investor, but that could give visibility into the investing space for founders so that they could better position themselves to raise money. So once you start talking to angels, there are a couple different types of angels. There are, you know, in angels who invest directly, there are super angels who invest big checks directly, and then there are angel groups. And there are very interesting dynamics around how all of them operate. I was with Sandhill Angels for two years, and now I'm investing on my own. Other people just start investing on their own, realize that they're making stupid decisions because they don't know what they're doing. And then they turn around and they join groups in order to gain some knowledge, get some structure around it, get better access to deals. In investing, it's all about relationship and it's all about information. And the most important thing for founders to understand is that it's important to build relationships with investors ahead of when they actually need money so that it isn't, you're not behind the curve running out of money and not having any sort of leverage or ability to take your time to develop those relationships, negotiate the best possible terms to raise that money so that you have the best possible outcome as a founder. Because not every founder ends up making money on their startup when they exit if they've raised money from outside sources depending upon how those those the each of those rounds are structured they could be left with everybody else getting paid before they get paid it's very interesting and sort of chatting to a lot of other people you know, a lot of people start businesses and they always think, oh, it would be great to be bought out and, you know, everything else. Or, or, or I've got such a good idea. I'd like to take it to the next level, you know. And like you said, getting that relationship built up is super important for these entrepreneurs. But let's take a step back. Let's say that an entrepreneur has come up with an idea. They've sort of been going about for 
maybe like one or two years, they've got a really good idea. Say they now try to pitch you and you've never heard of this guy and you don't know what his company is, you don't know what he does, and he wants to show you his idea and obviously try and get funding from you. What goes through your mind when someone approaches you that way? You obviously don't just want to like turn him away because you'd never heard of him, but obviously you have to be a bit cautious about who you're giving money to because you know people can just disappear and everything else. But so what do you think from your perspective are you looking for when you are looking at a company or an entrepreneur that's looking to get an angel investor on board? Well, let's go ahead and take a step back. So usually if I'm going to talk to somebody, I usually get introduced to them through a warm intro. So they're not coming in completely blind to me unless I'm meeting them at an event and they talk to me about it. I start engaging with them and I say, okay, send me over your pitch deck so that I can take a look at your pitch deck and we'll schedule a 15 minute conversation. But if I get cold pitch decks or cold emails, without any sort of you know, context, I generally ignore those. And part of the reason for that is I am asked, I can't even tell you the number of people who ask on a weekly basis for me to review their pitch deck and consider funding them. So I have, I have all sorts of opportunities to invest. So first of all, I need to have context. I need to have, to have some sort of an engagement. Otherwise, I'm like, who is this person? This person can completely run away they're not necessarily related to anybody that I know. So that to me is is of concern. So I eliminate most of those straight away. So when I start talking to them, I will have a pitch deck. I That's kind of the minimum bar for me to talk to somebody. If they don't have a good pitch deck or all they've got is an executive summary, um, I'm like, well, that's that's the minimum bar. Once again, because I have all sorts of opportunities to invest in countries, in in companies all around the world. So once I have the pitch deck and I engage in conversation, then if it's something that's piqued my interest and it looks like it's a decent opportunity and it's something that I think needs to exist in the world, then I will pursue additional conversations. I will look up them up on LinkedIn. I will look them up on Google. I will take a look to see who they're connected to to make sure that there's um, some sort of, I want to say, a safety net of other people who know this person. I have a a one hour talk that I put on about early stage investing due diligence. And so I have, for those that are big enough checks for me with big enough rounds, then I will go through a full full due diligence process. Uh, I can share with you, I've done a blog post, I've done a podcast on it. So if anyone wants to hear more about the due diligence, I can share that, that separately. But a lot of times what I do from a due diligence perspective is I right size it. So my average check size is is relatively small, somewhere between $10,000 and $15,000. Now, of the investments that I've made, I have doubled and tripled down. So if I made an additional investment of $10,000, if I've doubled and tripled, then I'm probably $30,000 into the investment. I tend to like to follow on in subsequent rounds to demonstrate support if I think that they should be an ongoing concern. But if it's a ten dollars or $15,000 check and they're only raising about $750,000 to a million dollars and I know them, I've done a little bit of digging around, they were referred to me through somebody that I trust, I will probably not do a whole heck of a lot of due diligence because I don't expect them to run away with it because I already have a couple of context points around them. If I'm trying to syndicate a deal on something like AngelList, 
where I feel like I have a fiduciary responsibility to do a more thorough review, I will go through and do my full due diligence, which is checking into the company and background checks on the the founders and um, financials. And if there's any intellectual property, checking to see what's around that, any sort of um, the competition, the the go-to-market strategy, maybe doing some reference checks with customers if they actually have customers. But I have a whole checklist of things that I would potentially go through in order to feel like I was, I comfortably vetted the opportunity and the people I would be investing in. That makes a lot of sense. So then can we take it on to the flip side? Are there questions that people should be asking an angel investor? I know obviously it's going to be a little bit, you know, niche specific depending on what the company is, but is there any kind of overlying thing like this is definitely something you need to ask about or be aware of before you get into an an agreement with an angel investor? That's a really great question. And so also something I talk about in the due diligence, because I tend to give that presentation more to founders than I do to actual investors. And I talk about the importance of founders doing their own due diligence because Generally speaking, you're going to be in a relationship with these investors for seven to 10 years. The relationship that you have tends to last longer than most marriages, statistically speaking. And there is nothing worse than having a bad investor or trying to get rid of a bad investor. So some of the questions, even before anybody starts talking to me, I think, or at the time that they start talking to me, it's important to ask, what is it that makes it interesting for you to invest in a startup? What is it that you're looking for? What are some of the things that you look for on a regular basis in terms of communication? What can you do to add additional value to us as a startup besides the check? Or do you simply just write a check and walk away? I would also later on down the road as part of the due diligence is find out from the investor and then do some other digging is what has been your most successful startup? Why was it successful? How did you help them be successful? And hopefully you've developed a decent enough relationship that that's not an uh, uncomfortable thing. But I think any investor who is confident would appreciate having that, that question asked. It's never been asked of me. The other one is, did you have any startups that didn't go well? Were you able to pitch in and help? What did you do? How did you feel about it? You know, any questions around that to get a sense of how things went when the startup went sideways. That is the thing that I think founders really need to dig into is look up you know, on Google or on Crunchbase or AngelList. Um, you can see a lot of us post our investments out there. And you can see, I think if something didn't go well, but ask around to other founders who had startups that that investor invested in that didn't go well and find out how things went. It's easy to be a good investor when things are going well, and it's not so easy when things aren't going well. And I think that's one of the most critical things for founders to really understand. And the other thing to do is you know with a google search or some some digging around find out is there something out there that is going to be potentially compromising for your cap table 
Having someone who has a negative reputation on your cap table could be bad signal for future investors or someone who's going to invest in a current round. So it's important to know. And right now we're seeing more and more with people coming out and talking about it, about hearing about people with bad reputations. It's just not good for subsequent rounds. I like how you kind of compare looking for an investor like a relationship because really it is like it's a professional relationship, but just like in your personal life when you're dating somebody or you go to get married, you kind of do your research and everything before you really get serious. I know I used to joke with Dennis all the time that back when I used to date, I would do like background checks on people just to kind of make sure I knew what I was getting into. Like you're not crazy. You haven't been arrested for a bunch of different things. And it definitely have wives in other states. Yeah. Because people it's, it's kind of sad that nowadays you have to do that kind of thing, but it definitely makes sense when you are, you know, going to be working with somebody, especially your business. A lot of times turns into like your baby. You want to really be establishing those good relationships and you don't want to get involved in, in a nightmare one. No, absolutely. In my due diligence presentation, I talk about the dating to when you start doing due diligence with an investor, that's really the engagement period. And then when you have the purchasing agreement in place or the convertible note or whatever it is, it's going to be the the financial instrument. When that gets signed, at that point, you're married. So great way to pick up on that's exactly what the process is. Have you ever invested in a company and things just went completely south? Like it didn't turn out at all the way you were expecting and, you know, maybe the, the company went under immediately or they just went through all the cash and there was no sort of return. And how did you sort of deal with that? So as an angel investor, knock on wood, I've been investing for a little over three years. All of the companies that I have invested in are still ongoing concerns and all of them seem to be doing fine. There's one that I'm a little bit concerned about, but... I kind of got coerced into investing in it and I don't actually really care about it. But otherwise, no, they're all doing they're all doing well. And either I'm not taking big enough risk or I've done a great job picking. I think that you have done a great job picking. <laughs> I would I would stick on that side. <laughs> so there's one thing that I wanted to bring up because, you know, I talked about angel investors and it, and being an accredited investor. And a lot of people think that you have to be super wealthy to be able to get access to all of these startups. And that's not necessarily the case. Things are changing. With the Jobs Act that came out a couple of years ago, there are actually opportunities for non-accredited investors to be able to invest in startups through some sort of a, a platform, whether it's through Seed Invest is one of them, but there's equity crowdfunding that's available. Indiegogo has one, WeFunder, Republic. I think Jenny Casson has crowdfund Main Street. She just started that. That launched in August. They're out of Oakland, California. So providing greater opportunity for um, people who either don't meet the minimum net worth requirement, which I think is about a million dollars, or have the uh, annual income where if you're single, I think it's 250. And if you are filing jointly, it's 300 or 350,000, somewhere up there. And I think this is a good thing. It's still early, early days. And unfortunately, you're not necessarily seeing the top startups that are, are, are raising money through equity crowdfunding. 
but it allows people who want to start dabbling in this to maybe put in $500 or $1,000, you know, not necessarily a lot of money, but to fund startups that they, they want to see exist in the world. And then also be able to start to build up a portfolio, build up risk tolerance, build up understanding of how this whole ecosystem works to potentially get to the point where you can write larger checks directly into startups or invest in syndicates on angel list. And I think it's something that we need to start exploring more for people to start to be able to really have more of an upside. The way that it's structured right now is in such a way that it will continue to create a larger and larger gap between the haves and the have-nots. And Ryan from Seed Invest talks about how when he he was a credit investor, he was able to invest, and then he decided to go to, to get his MBA. And so he didn't meet the net income requirement. And then all of a sudden was no longer able to invest because he was no longer an eligible accredited investor. And then when he finished, he went back, got a job again. He was back meeting the income requirement to be accredited investor. His knowledge didn't change. His experience didn't change. It was simply an arbitrary financial cutoff. And once again, it's leading to, I think, continued disparity between the haves and the have-nots. And so I'm hoping that He's been working and a number of people have been working on changing those rules to allow for more people to do it. Some will argue who are in the accredited investor space that that this is a way to keep the riffraff out, that other people shouldn't be, um, they're just not knowledgeable enough. And I just have to say that I've seen some really stupid, wealthy people, um, and I've seen some very smart, not so wealthy people. So I, I think it's more of a protectionism type thing and less about creating equal opportunity. It's amazing in this day and age how the world's changing. There is that equal opportunity coming in more and more. And we see it like with these mobile apps and like just investing in the stock markets, you know, it's becoming more and more acceptable to everyday people. So it's nice to see that change happening. Yeah, we need to see a democratization of that in order to begin to narrow this gap. It's going to take a while There is some concern that VCs don't like to have equity crowdfunding on cap tables because they think that there are a whole bunch of unsophisticated investors who are investing that could potentially create a bunch of noise and create some potential legal issues. So as I said, we're still early days, but not all startups need VC money. And I think that's important for founders to understand. There are becoming more alternative funding mechanisms to allow for funding of uh, startups. So potentially cheaper money because angel money and VC money isn't necessarily cheap money. It may provide you to be able to get from certain points to certain points or in the case of a series A or a series B to really scale and grow. They VCs want to add fuel to a fire and just add basically kerosene to the fire. And they just want to see massive growth. And not every founder wants that. Not every startup is really destined to be that way. So Katie, going back to, you know, if a founder wants to do this, what would, you know, they go about doing? I think what Mm -hmm. they have to do is think long and hard about who they are, who they want to be as a startup and make sure that angel money and VC money is really the the route they want to go. Definitely. 
Chainers, we're just going to take a quick break and then we'll dive right back into the value link round. Chainers, if you're looking to create a passive income, I've got the perfect resource for you. Head on over to chainofwealth.com slash passive dash income. This is a guide that I've created. I've spent over 70 hours making this post. It's an absolute goldmine of information when it comes to passive income with everything that you could want, how to build it, what it is, the different kinds of streams of passive income, and a couple of ideas that you could maybe start implementing. So head on over to chainofwealth.com slash passive dash income. Okay, Terry. So I'm going to be honest. I'm really curious now with all of this different investing that you're doing and everything. What does your personal savings and retirement plan look like? It's incredibly diverse. Um, I I could imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I have, I feel like I have a bit of an advantage in that my dad, who is a CPA, personal financial specialist, I started working for him when I was nine, when I was, I filed for him. And then when I was 16, I was doing tax returns and financial statements and then I was doing audits and reviews at 20, 21 years of age. I got to work on a lot of my my dad's company and his personal stuff. So I was able to see with his, that was when they actually had um, uh, a shared retirement plan. Um, I can't remember what it was called, but I would go in and I would see the various different investments and I would see the, the amount that he was setting aside and putting away for retirements. And I would also see what he was putting away in terms of investing in um, companies at that point. I, it didn't dawn on me that it was startups he was investing in. I didn't put two and two together till much later. I mean, this was many, many years ago. So he started getting me to invest in stuff and retirement accounts and then also non-retirement stuff when we were doing well and we'd already purchased our first house, but we needed to just start putting away to just to build the nest egg. And so we just invested in random things. Some of it was tax shelter related. So we did some oil and gas, a little embarrassed to say we've invested in fracking, not anymore. So it's all over the place. Some stuff is riskier than others. I do try to keep a little bit of cash just in case the market goes sideways. So we have REITs. I have some stuff that's just in the stock market. I have stuff that's in index funds, stuff that's in mutual funds. I like to dabble in new technologies. So with Wealthfront, I've got some in there. A year and a half ago, I started, um, I don't even want to say investing. I started buying Bitcoin and then um, Ethereum and Litecoin. So I do, we do have some crypto. I've not invested in any ICOs. I still think that's way way too scary for me. Um, And then we've got a certain amount that I allocate to startups. Originally, I'd allocated a certain amount um, because I figured the first two years I was going to be an angel investor. I The minimum amount that we had to invest through Sandhill was $25,000 a year. So I figured, okay, I'll just put, I'll do the minimum amount. So I'll do 50,000 over two years with 5,000 administration fees. That's $55,000. I figured this will be my real life PhD. I'll just use this as an education opportunity. If I get any returns from it, great. If not, you know, it, this will have been my education. I've spent considerably more than <laughs> I think I'm. I think I've tripled that. So I'm still not in for all that much. I'm averaging about fifty thousand dollars a year that I invest either in initial 
investing or with follow-ons. I think this year I'm on track. I, yeah, I've already invested that this year. So I have to be a little bit careful for the rest of the year. It's all over the place. Did that answer your question, Katie? That did. I just, I feel like in my own head, when you hear terms like angel investors, I'm really glad that you came on the show because in my head, I think of angel investors and it's like some rich dude in an office somewhere like in New York. And it's nice to know that my vision of what I thought is not at all what it has to be. And so I just, I really wanted to know kind of where else you're putting money in. And I'm also, I want to say I'm really learning how to invest now. So I like to see where other people who actually know what they're doing, uh, where they're putting their money. Yeah. And that's, and so early on, I think I took a lot of guidance from my dad. Um, I now have complete reins, you know, I'm 48 years old. It's a good thing that I have complete reins at this point. But for a long time, I was really fortunate that I was able to rely on him. But then I become a lot more sophisticated over the last 10 or 15 years as I become more familiar with with various different options. And then definitely in the last three years, I really feel like I've truly ramped up on my investing knowledge. I've also sat down with my husband. And fortunately, he and I are totally aligned on values to sit down and say, okay, we don't want these things in our portfolio any longer. So we got rid of anything related to tobacco. We got rid of, you know, McDonald's. We got rid of anything that's oil and gas related. Um, so we're trying to be very much more discriminatory. Well, discriminatory sounds right. Uh, we're trying to make better decisions about what it is that we're investing in that's more in line with the values that we have about, you know, being in the world. We're both, you know, born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. So we are totally liberal Californians. And we do not believe that, you know, it should be ROI at all costs. And that's that's definitely not necessarily super popular around here in the Silicon Valley, but it's the way that we want to operate in the world. The one thing I didn't mention that's also in our portfolio is our house. And I bring that up only because because of where we live, housing prices and property values are super, super high. And so that is the biggest asset that's in our portfolio. And I want to add one more thing. So my husband and I were really, really fortunate in that we, well, maybe not so fortunate. We both went to state schools. And so our education wasn't really all that expensive. I had no student debt when I graduated with my undergraduate or with my MBA. You are but my so MBA, lucky. Yes, no, but I also don't have pedigree because my undergrad and my MBA are from Cal State Hayward. And let me tell you, when I walk into rooms with other investors and even with founders who are from Stanford, Berkeley, Princeton, MIT, Carnegie Mellon, Johns Hopkins, I get I get snubbed. I get dismissed very quickly because I don't have the education pedigree despite all of my other experience. It's only when they find out that I drive a Tesla and I have for nearly five years, so early adopter, and I'm a helicopter pilot that they pay attention. But I get I get snubbed really quickly. But we are very, very fortunate because um, my husband also went to a state school and he dropped out of his MBA halfway through. So we didn't really have student debt to deal with. And we're going to... We're fortunately 
in a fortunate situation, then we're going to make sure that our kids don't have that. But I know that we are incredibly fortunate and privileged to have had that as something that wasn't an anchor for us. And we're hopefully going to make it so it's not one for our kids too. Fantastic. So do you have any other books or podcasts you could recommend? Well, of course, mine. I was say, definitely <laughs> <laughs> so Katie, you know, to your point about, you know, you kind of assumed that, you know, the angel investors were these rich fat cats sitting someplace and they got access to things, you know, out here, the angel investors, you know, are uh, perceived as, you know, ex Twitter, ex Google, ex, they're part of the PayPal mafia or, you know, one of these, these others. So the picture out here is it looks more like a Zuckerberg than it does um, one of the, the fat cats on Wall Street. But we need to change that image. And one of the reasons why I do have my podcast piloting your life is I want to show specifically women that there are different paths into investing and that we all have our unique paths in. There is no single path in and we can be it. And I want, I am a firm believer that if you can see it, you can be it. And so I want to make that um, obvious. But the two books that I really highly recommend, as I mentioned earlier, were Angel and Venture Deals. I love that. And I love that you're being such a positive role model and you're really just doing great things over there. So do you have- I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> One day at a time, right? <laughs> yes. Do you have a favorite quote you try to live by to help you stay grounded and motivated at the same time? Yes. Well, actually, it's I'm far too grounded. And I think it's really important for me to take risks. So one of the mottos or quotes is go out on the limb. That's where the fruit is. So that I do continue to take risks and I do continue to push the boundaries because it's easy to do the safe thing but there's no way to actually grow and improve and really make a difference in the world if I'm always doing the same thing. Right. You got to do something that scares you every day, right? Absolutely. That's another one. I love that one. And I have to say that every day I do that. <laughs> yes, definitely. Terry, we've absolutely loved hanging out today. Do you have any other last potting piece of advice for our listeners? And then we'll say goodbye. Ooh, last piece of advice. Invest early, invest often. I think it's important, even if you're paying off student debts, even if you're, you know, saving up for some, just just start putting something away. I, I really love Wealthfront. I love that it's, it's robo stuff. My stuff's gone up significantly in that, but I also don't have to pay any fees for it because I got in early on that. There are all sorts of different tools out there. Stash, there are a number of things, tools specifically designed for millennials, which I think is kind of your target market. So start taking a look and just start putting money away and have it go, whether it's $5 a week or $25 a week, what you don't realize is that adds up over time. I started putting away, I think $250 twice a month, like 30 years ago. And I looked into the account and I was absolutely amazed at what the number was in that account. I've, I've tapped into that when we purchased houses, I've tapped into that for some vacations. I've tapped into it for some investing. And, you know, initially it was like, oh, you know, way back when that seemed like a lot of money, but you forget about it when it's set up to automatically come out of your account. So I am a big believer in just setting aside. I'm, I, I like to stash money in different places and then kind of forget about it. 
and but put it to work. And so I highly recommend doing that. So forego those extra lattes or you know whatever it is that's that's kind of a an unnecessary splurge and just just stash it away and then just begin to invest and start to get comfortable with taking those kinds of risks because then you build your risk tolerance and you also build a portfolio. So over time you have something as you are, you know, moving forward in the rest of your life. I love that advice. I also use stash and there's a new one. I think it's definitely targeted for millennials. It's called Digit and it takes a little bit of money out of your account every day. And when I say like a little bit of money, like 15 cents or 20 cents or something like that. And I looked actually earlier today and I've almost got like a thousand dollars in there literally from like random spare change. Well, and it's also, you know, the power of compound interest. So if you're making any sort of interest on it, those little amounts, I'm also a believer in dollar cost averaging. So, and this is where stash is good for that, you know, reinvesting, reinvested dividends. So you just buy things over time because there's no way that we're ever going to be able to time the market. And so you might be high one day, you might be low another day, but if you're investing in the same thing over a period of time, then over time, you'll get probably a decent return over time. Definitely. Shane is with me out with Terry Mead. You can check out her podcast. It's called Piloting Your Life. And you can check out her website. It's terryhansonmead.com. And Shane definitely start investing as soon as you can. You definitely want to get that value of compounding. It's going to really set you up for later in life. We'll catch you on the flip side. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 